Welcome to the Knife Junkie Podcast, your weekly dose of knife news and information about knives and knife collecting. Here's your host, Bob the Knife Junkie DeMarco. Welcome to the Knife Junkie Podcast. I'm Bob DeMarco. On this edition of the show, I'm speaking with Imri Morgenstern, a former IDF operator who teaches shooting and other tactical skills. I met Imri at the TKL Knives booth at Blade Show, where I proceeded to monopolize his time talking about knife defense, his knife designs, like the TKL Sapper, and his time spent on the front lines. With an exciting new release just now in the hands of those who pre-ordered them, I thought this was a perfect time to find out more about Mr. Morgenstern. It can be hard to keep a conversation going at Blade Show with so many shiny objects all around, so I'm excited to have a proper conversation with Imri. And dig in. But first, be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and hit the notification bell. Also, share the show if you would. That really does help out. And as always, if you want to help support the show financially, you can go over to Patreon. Uh, quickest way to do that is go to the knifejunkie.com slash Patreon. Again, that's the knifejunkie.com slash Patreon. Do you like the sound of the alphanumeric combinations M390, 204P, and 20CV, but bristle at 8CR13MOV and AUS-8? You are a knife junkie, probably worse. Emery, great to have you here, sir. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited. It's it's my pleasure. Yeah, we so we met at the TKEL booth uh, where we have uh, something in common, uh, well, a love of knives and a love of of Tim Kell's knives. And just off the bat, I want to say congratulations on the Sapper. Congratulations on that. It just dropped. I know people who pre-ordered them just got them. And I unfortunately was not on that roster. Uh, I hope to change that in the future, but um, man, it is a beautiful knife. I got to check it out at Blade Show. So congratulations on that. Thank you. you. I appreciate it. One little correction. We had a run come out of like 15 or 20 and the people who are pre-ordering, uh, I believe in August there will be it. So, okay. Okay. Sorry to misspeak. That can be a, uh, that can be a, a sticky subject when people are excited to get their knives and they hear, wait, what? Everyone else got them? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, there, there's the first batch, the preliminary batch where we kind of stuck, uh, dipped our toe into the, the sapper water and, and now we're, we're going into production. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, okay, I want to talk all about that and your design goals with the Sapper and all that. But before we get to that, I want to lay down some of your background. I mean, uh, you have a, um, from from what I gathered, talking to you and from what I've read, uh, you have had so far a, a pretty uh, complete uh, military career in the Israeli Defense Force. And um, I, I, I don't know yeah. if that's how I would say it. Um, I, it, you know, I don't know if a complete, you know, well, I don't know what that means, but I'll, I'll Okay, let me not let me not say complete. Let me say you've served a lot. You've done a lot of things in some dangerous lands for a good long time in in some dangerous situations. Uh, maybe not complete. You probably have more more. I uh, retire. Oh, oh, you're not retired. Okay, I'm not retired. No, I got out. Um, but you know, in the usual fashion of Israel, you're in the uh, in the reserves. In, in special units, you're in reserves in your active duty unit, essentially till you're about 50. So, hmm. all right. So tell me how you got uh, involved with the IDF and, and, and what you sort of began to specialize in and, and how you grew within, within that career. Sure. So let's see. I went in in, uh, uh, late 2000, early 2001. Um, really I was, I was born in Israel. And so, uh, you know, we moved, my parents and I moved to the States when I was, uh, uh, eight ish, seven, eight, nine. And, uh, it was kind of a lot of back and forth, uh, you know, high school and stuff I did here. Played football and wrestling and all the, you know, the, the normal stuff for here. And which, by the way, was like the most, uh, instrumental probably piece to my being able to have, uh, a ball in the army. I loved it. I love it. I still love it. Um, I, yeah, and I, and I totally miss it, but you know, now that I'm living here now, I'm not, you know, actively engaged in the military. Um, now I, I teach you. So I will spare all your viewers the entire saga of, uh, you know, early on and how I got to my unit and all that. Um, but the bottom line is 
you know, training takes a long time. You go through the pipeline, you go through all the selection process and all that stuff. And, um, you know, and then I did about two years of, of training. Um, and, you know, and then you're in, in it. And, uh, you know, unlike being in the military here, you know, where, where the majority of our wars that we have to fight or, you know, you know, where our guys deploy is really far away, you know, everything's there is within maybe a half an hour to a couple hours for the majority of stuff, you know, the Palestinian territories, Gaza, you know, Lebanon, Syria, all that stuff is all closed. Egypt's right there. Of course, we have peace with Egypt and Jordan, so there's not as much there, but my unit actually got to work there quite a bit, um, which kind of connects to the whole sapper thing because uh, because I did a lot of demining uh, mm. on, on the Egyptian and, and uh, Jordanian border regions. So, uh, you know, so that's kind of one piece. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, demolition was kind of my thing. Uh, earlier on, it was, I was in a section of the unit that's uh, more long range stuff, demolition raids and all kinds of uh, little intel things and whatever. And, uh, later on I got into, which really became my passion. And that's, um, and it was more on the hostage rescue breaching specifically. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I, I love it. I mean, blowing up, blowing something up and standing practically right on top of the charge and running in and running and gunning through the smoke and everything. It's, it's a ball. It's a ball, right? I, I often refer to it as better than sex. Well, to me, uh, well, to me, it's very interesting, the whole idea of standing right next to an explosive charge that you set, that you have, you know, the expertise to make it go that way and not this way. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone on the other side, if they're still alive, they're probably stunned. And uh, that's probably a great way for you to enter that room in that situation. That's the idea. Yeah. That is, that, I mean, just to get good at that has to be, um, well, it has to be a uh, a very... I would imagine you have to really be paying attention through all of your training. You cannot slack when you're dealing with explosives. I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm not sure this is really the the path we want to go down. I'll, I could talk about this all day, but um, <clears throat> yes, you get you get a lot of leeway in certain ways with modern day military grade tools um, and charges and whatever. Uh, you know, you can get any monkey to set a charge. That's easy. Uh, you know, put that there, connect this, you know, plug this in here. You're good to go. Understanding really, you know, the, the magic of it. So I went from the macro to the micro, right? Breaching is surgical, especially when you're talking HR breaching, uh, meaning hostage rescue breaching. That's very specific, very surgical. Um, you have to, for two reasons, really, right? One is effect into the room and two is, how close you can get your team. That's, that's your balance right there. Um, is between those two things and what can I, how can I with 100% certainty and 100% silence guarantee the opening of this door at an immediate moment with a very specific effect? It's fun. It's awesome. It's awesome. But yeah, it's, yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, w- I w- I'm sitting here thinking of all that must be involved in. And, um, you know, uh, I would imagine a lot of different uh, military skills take a lot of nerve, but explosives to me always seem so unforgiving, you know, um, I have all my fingers. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> so, so you, you grew up somewhat in the States, you moved back to serve in Israel. Right. Um, and, uh, so you're, uh, you know, part of military life knives. Tell me about your use of knives. Um, and, have you always been someone who's had an affinity for him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, starting as a kid, my first love affair with knives was, I must have been, I don't know, I must have been five or six, uh, maybe earlier, I, you know, somewhere in there. And my grandmother, I grew up with my grandmother mainly. Um, my mother was was off, you know, uh, she was a theater actress for a while. And so she was touring and all that. And I, I just grew up with my grandmother who was a phenomenal, incredible woman, maybe a story for some other podcasts where it's more relevant. Uh, but, uh, she bought me a knife. It was like one of those Rambo knives, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, it was a little mm-hmm. 
screw top, right? With the compass and the matches and all that BS. And, uh, you know, piece of junk, I'm assuming. Uh, and came home and all I wanted to do was two hand in this knife, you know, a little tiny kid. And I'm, I'm two hand in this knife and my best friend's over, uh, I'm playing with the knife, everything. And then my mother comes home like a few days later, made my, she, she just lost it and made my grandmother <laughs> back to the store. Um, so, but yeah, I've, I've always had an obsession, uh, with, with knives and guns and everything. Uh, I just, I love it. And that's why, you know, certain people, they get out of the military and they're like, cool, I'm done. I don't want to see guns. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see all this stuff. Like, I'm not against it, but like, okay, I did my thing. I'm done. To me, no, it just started my infatuation, uh, my military service. So, um, and that's why I do what I do now, right? It's, a, it's a, the biggest reason for why I, I do what I do now. So, um, so yeah. So in terms of military, you know, knives in the military are not, ta- they're not mostly used the way I think a lot of people imagine. And, I think that uh what most people think about knives is you carry a knife because you you know you you get in fights and you use your knife to kill people and that's really couldn't be further from the truth. Um your knife is one of your most important tools in your kit and very rarely is it used for actual for the act of fighting, right? Um these days we have we have such tremendous you know weaponry Right, uh, with an you know, AR pistol and all that stuff, they're 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 very dependable. So, you know, uh, I think in combatives training in the military, uh, you know, is we do some knife training, but it's nothing um, like what you would expect, right? Uh, and and really, that's all units. I'm sure there's some you know uh, Asian militaries and stuff that that do take it a little more seriously, but uh, it's more part of their culture. But in Western militaries, really, knife fighting is is uh, all but lost art. Uh, on occasion, a unit gets interested in it, and you know, I've done some, I've I've provided some knife training to some military units here in the states uh, in the last few years. But it's really, uh, you know, okay, you know, there's four hours in in five six days of training, right? And that's kind of what what it comes down to. And so, you know, with Krav Maga and all this stuff that we do, um. You know, in terms of combatives, we do some knife stuff and it's really, it, it left me wanting so much more. Cause I'm like, man, really a knife, a knife's not just used for sentry removal. Matter of fact, we don't use knives at all for sentry removal. We do other things and that, you know, that's really irrelevant, I guess, for right now. But, um, and so that, that kind of got me going after the military into, into really wanting to explore it, learn about it. Uh, where I really got into it was actually, um, I want to say it was like 2013, maybe. And, um, uh, I had been living in Israel, uh, up until that point. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, I had this crappy injury in my arm and, you know, a series of surgeries and bone transplant and, you know, screws and stuff. And I was like, you know what, when I get, when I get through with all this, uh, you know, all this hand crap and all this, I'm moving back to the States. And I want to learn how to be a knife maker. I want to go live up in the mountains, uh, Colorado, Montana, whatever, which I, I actually lived up in Colorado for, uh, quite a few years and, uh, lived in Montana for a while. And so my whole thing is like, I, I kind of want to, I wanted to go back there. I want to learn knife making, start a knife making business, um, hand making knives, knowing nothing about zero about making knives, uh, or really or fighting other than what I learned in the military. I moved, let's see, in Colorado, I found, uh, my teacher, who's now one of my very best friends, uh, by the name of Steve Rollert. Uh, tremendous, not only an incredible knife maker, incredible teacher, but really a tremendous human being, uh, tremendous human being. And his, his soul goes into every single knife. Uh, and he's, he's incredible. So I, I actually ended up living in, in his shop for oh, about wow. a year and a half. Uh, I would set up a cot, literally, I would set up a cot between the power hammer and the anvil and get a few hours of sleep. And that's it. I literally lived in that shop for about a year and a half. Um, and, uh, which was incredible because Steve not only, I mean, he brought me into his family and, and it was actually quite a turbulent time. 
for their family, um, personally. And so, you know, some, some sickness in the family and, and some death and it was, it was hard times. And I'm glad to have been part of that because, um, because it was rough. And if I can help, you know, so that's, that's really where I, I started learning knife making through Steve, one of his best friends, uh, uh, Owen Wood, one of the most incredible knife makers ever. Uh, Owen uh, lived in Colorado, he's South African originally, tremendous, again, tremendous, uh, knife maker, tremendous machinist, just incredible mind, tremendous human being as well. Um, and we all became very, very close. And, uh, I have a knife here that I made <laughs> with Owen that's kind of his design, but, you know, Owen makes these folders. I, I mean, they're so intricate and so complex. Hmm. I could never even, in my wildest dreams, I wouldn't even think of being able to recreate one of his knives. Well, let's see that knife. I want to see this. For, this is one of your very first. And then I want to talk about, about the sapper. And, and then we will see, like, we will see an, an evolution, obviously, from beginning to end. I have a few of my knives here, uh, what I have left. Uh, and uh, honestly, I'm, I'm going to show you this knife. It's a folding knife. Mm. Uh, it's very cool. I, in no way, shape, or form, can take credit for this knife because uh, because it's Owen's design, and I did the whole thing essentially under Owen's not only tutelage, but like if he wasn't sitting there, literally looking over my shoulder, no, 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 stop, you know, do this, do that, right, whatever. right, um, and look at that's beautiful, man. The shoulders here, right? This is something that people don't really show much. Oh, the plunge grinds there, yeah. Beautiful. And that's all by hand, right? I mean, that's, so I could never do plunge lines this perfectly even. Can't do it when Owen's looking over your shoulder, you're sitting on his machine with his light set up, you mm. know, all that. This is what I got. You know, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's, it looks machine made. I don't yeah. have that kind of skill, right? Um, so, and this is, I'm sorry, I'll do this again. I'm, I'm, uh, so this is uh, a explosion pattern Damascus. I know it's a little bit difficult to see. There we go. No, we can see that pretty well. That looks moving around a little bit. So what? It, uh, just that steel, and of course, this is an imperfect uh, example, to say the least, of a explosion pattern Damascus. But that took me. It took me probably three weeks just to make the billet. Wow. Um, so that's the level. You know, Owen could probably do it in a few days. It took me about three weeks. Well, so how do you, how much of what, of the knives that you've uh, been responsible for so far, how much of that is design and how much of, uh, of them have you made? I know you have worked with Lotar combat knives out of Israel and have that beautiful, uh, Karma Karambit. Uh, but you did not make that. You designed that one, correct? correct. Is that correct? Absolutely. Not, not, I did not design it. I co-designed it with him. It was, um, we had been talking so near, uh, and I, I want to get back to Steve because I didn't really get yeah, give yeah. Steve credit, but near, uh, the owner of Latar Combat Knives is a, a very dear friend of mine. Um, also an Israeli SF veteran. Uh, he served in a, he served in another unit that I, uh, one of my favorite units to work with. Just excellent, excellent top notch guys. And, uh, and he, you know, kind of same as me has always had an addiction to, to the cutting weapons. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, so we, we were discussing one day and I was like, dude, we got to do something together. And, um, I was like, Hey, I, I'd like to start with the Karambit if you're good with it, because I've made a bunch of Karambits when I was making knives up by hand. My teacher, Steve was very much responsible for getting me into Karambits. He introduced mm. me to all all the like 0.003% of Southeastern martial arts that I'm familiar with. And, um, and I automatically fell in love with them a, because they're just so special, right? Yeah. So yeah. cool. And something about just that it's like, I don't, you know, I'm no engineer, but there's gotta be some sacred geometry to that curve that just makes it incredible. But, but then in terms of use, Right. They're cool. So Steve, my, my teacher, um, actually introduced me to Michael Janich and started bringing me to, to train with Michael Janich in martial blade concepts. So I did that for a few years and I, that's definitely the best system 
that in my experience I have gotten to train with. And so, um, so I do try to pass that knowledge on today as well, right? Because it's, if someone comes up with something and teaches it to you and you're like, Oh my God, this, this works so incredibly well. Right. So, so anyway, through all that, because we're talking about Latar combat knives, um, I, so I, I got to starting to make a lot of karambits and I feel like I got, you know, the most misunderstood part of a karambit is the handle and how that handle works. Uh, and I actually have one of my Damascus karambits here that I handmade that was the basis for, uh, for this karma. So I had actually sent it to Nir because he lives across the country from me right now. Um, he lives on the West coast. And so, I sent it to him and, and we just drawings back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I cannot take credit for how this knife looks. I can take credit for how this knife behaves to a large degree. Um, but, but the look that, the, yes, the design, the features, the placement of things was very much my part of this collaboration. Everything visual on here, that's, that's near because, you know, his stuff is so different and stands out and it's so cool. And it's really got his flavor on it. So when you were showing me the, the, uh, karma at Blade Show, you, you were using, showing the teeth on the back and how they're used for kind of like trapping and gripping and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, so it, it, it made me wonder, how does the karambit fit in with, uh, look at that. Oh man, I love those teeth, those gripping teeth on the back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll have to pardon the uh the spray paint here. That was a range accident. <laughs> oh, ah, yeah. But uh it, it just makes me wonder, you know, the the um the karambit. Okay, let's talk martial blade con martial blade uh concepts awesome. for a sec. Um that is done, you know, sort of at least how we see it. It doesn't have to be, but we oftentimes think of the Warncliffe. We think of the Yojimbo, the Yojumbo. Uh, Michael Janich's designs specifically for Marshall Blade concepts. Um, we think of that style blade like you're holding there. Um, how does, how does the Karambit, for instance, God, that's gorgeous. How does the Karambit fit into MBC? And how does the Karambit fit into, say, Krav Maga, the, uh, I guess your native, uh, uh, hand art? My native flavor. Yeah, <laughs> your native flavor. <laughs> okay. Tremendously well is the bottom line. Um, so, Martial Blade Concepts is definitely not a Karambit-based uh, art. It's actually not a martial art at all, which is why I love it. Right? Uh, no kata, no nothing. It's all about being practical and useful, and it's actually designed around specifically a folding knife. That's that's the thought process behind uh, behind Martial Blade Concepts. It's supposed to be whatever you have on you, it's going to work. If, if you live in Chicago and all you can carry is a one or two inch blade, whatever their law is there right now, you can make it work. Just keep it sharp. And the Warncliffe is, again, something I learned about from my teacher, Steve Rollert. But like you said, Michael Janich is very big on Warncliffs and he actually owns, well, I'm very proud. He actually owns one of my Warncliffs that I made. Oh, cool. Um, the genius of a Warncliffe in terms of a self-defense weapon is that your, well, let's define it in case somebody doesn't know, right? You have a straight cutting edge that is straight all the way to the tip, right? It's completely flat. There's no curve in it. And then from your spine at what some point, right, you have this cut that goes down towards the tip and the tip is at the very thinnest cross section of your blade. Now that can create some, some problems as well in terms of tip strength. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and that's the big part of design is figuring out what parts you have to reinforce or do whatever with. And so for, in terms of use, why this is so good for self-defense, uh, this tip, if designed right, is not frail. Uh, you can definitely make it frail because it is at the thinnest cross section of your steel right down here where usually, right, most tips will be up higher. A tonto, the reason a tonto, which is kind of a backwards Warncliffe, right, 
one of the reasons why a Tonto is considered to have such a strong blade or a strong tip, I'm sorry, is because the tip of the blade is at the thickest cross section mm-hmm. of your steel, right? Up top, um, in line with the spine ish, depending on design. And so you're getting a, str- a stronger tip, but here for whatever length blade you have, you are going to get maximum cutting surface, uh, of, of your knife. And so, if you have a shorter blade, a three inch blade in most states or a two or one inch blade, if you live in places that are very prohibitive, you can still get maximum effect out of that length of blade. Mm. So uh, it's genius. Janich designs a lot of knives for Spyderco and his personal preference, because what he designs knives for is primarily self-defense. Um, right. And so he likes a very thin cross section, A, because they're folding knives, B, because they, by definition, they're going to be sharper. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the tip on a lot of those and some of those, at least the older ones, I'm not up to date on all the current ones, but at least some of the older Yojimbos and everything, uh, they had a, a hollow grind. Yep. Right. So that can give you extra sharpness. Not necessarily depth of cut, but on human flesh, that's not as important, right? It's not a piece of wood that is going to, that your blade is going to wedge into if that hollow grind is too steep. Right. So in my mind, I like over designed, big, beefy, heavy things, right? And so, um, so I, uh, to me, it just, it's like, oh, I, I, you know, I love the knife, but that tip, I guarantee I'm breaking that tip off. Yeah. Grip, right. For Jen, she says, okay, then you get another $200 knife, but it saved your life. And he's 100% correct. He's correct. This is why America's awesome, because we have the option to love whatever flavor of AR-15 or well, almost now, despite current political crap. Yeah. Uh, we, we have all these flavors, and we get to personalize it. And that's why custom knife makers are, are in business, right? Yeah. Amen. I mean, I, that's that's the whole theme of this show for me anyway. And my collection is variety is the spice of life. I love like all the stuff behind me on the wall. I love cheap little folders. I love expensive. I love it all. I, I'll go to I'll go to Walmart and get a fix if I need one, you know, uh, <laughs> but but just like the blade and uh, tomahawks, whole arms doesn't matter. I love it all. Uh, but I, I want to uh, you wanted to talk a little bit more about your teacher um uh your steve. your your knife making teacher steve and uh and then i want to find out about this sapper design and where it comes yeah. from i want you to break it down for me i feel like you got a lot of roots from this gentleman um oh, tell yeah. me a little bit more so steve's incredible right um i've already said you know how i kind of came to be at his shop and everything and um steve and i connect on a, you know we're very very similar in many ways and uh, he's a very Bushido kind of guy, if you know what I mean. Um, and he's been a martial artist his whole life. He's been uh, his whole life for, for you know, 35, 40 years, a long time. He's been a knife maker for about that long. And uh, so tremendous. And, and But then in terms of how we approach creating something, obviously the fundamentals and all the technical stuff I learned from him. But... Um, um, how, how we conceptualize a knife is very similar. Um, and so, although he, he's a lot more into the Southeastern stuff, Southeast Asia, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the, the Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia kind of stuff, because he actually studied under Uncle Bill de Torres, uh, oh. Penchak Silat and all that for many, many, many years. And he's introduced me to him and Uncle Bill actually broke my knuckle, uh, which I'm proud of. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So Steve, you know, he has that same personality of passion about it as I do. Whereas Owen, who is just, uh, he's in this unbelievably, uh, scientific mind and he's really a machinist and an engineer type, uh, where Steve and I are kind of, we flow with it and it's going to end up beautiful or, or it ends up in the ceiling when you get pissed off and, throw the knife at the ceiling and it gets stuck. Right. So, uh, which is kind of our joke, but, uh, 
yeah, so I, so I really, you know, Steve was such an inspiration in, in terms of everything. Um, such a wealth of knowledge and such a, you know, what, what person just takes some random Israeli guy to live with them in their shop, uh, you know, in, in the house with, you know, uh, where his, his daughter and her children live and all that. And they, and, and at the time, Jamie, his wife, uh, who, who had passed away while I was there, who was also a, a very inspirational person. So they took me into this family. And, and it was all, we, we got to geek out on this stuff literally 24 hours a day. Um, so such a tremendous person. And, and yeah, I just, I, uh, you know, I just can't, I can't thank people like that enough. You know, if that makes sense. Sure. So just from knowing you just a little bit and, and from the conversation, uh, we had a blade show knowing about the sapper, um, and then talking about, um, karambits and other tactical knives you know and and mbc i know that you are the sort of person who if i were to say what makes a good knife you'd say it depends on the purpose uh i i just have a feeling <laughs> so absolutely yes. so you built the sapper as a uh based on your experience demining um i want you to tell me a little bit about what demining actually is like what what the action is and then how the sapper, besides so many other things, I look at the sapper, I see a beautiful fighting knife, I see a combat knife, but there is so much more to it. Um, let's talk about that. Tell me a little bit about the demining and then this design. Yeah, so kind of where we started off, and, and I think the, the reason we segued into everything with my military service and having to do a lot with demolition, um, so parts of demolition are what people think they are, uh, you know, blowing up buildings, blowing up, you know, stuff, setting up things to blow up later, uh, or, or setting them up to blow up now. Um, there are big parts of the, you know, working, uh, aspects of demolition that, uh, that are not what you think. And, and a lot of it uh, has to do, especially in that region with, with mines, landmines both anti-tank and anti-personnel landmines. And it's a big thing. The north of Israel, the Golan Heights uh, and parts of the Galilee there uh, are some of the more heavily landmine, landmined uh, per mass areas on the planet. Um, you know, there's other, there's Sri Lanka, there's places in Africa that, that have, you know, a ton of mines, but, you know, all around the borders of Israel, on, on both sides of every border, there's a ton of landmines. And, and so it's, it's a big thing that we had to deal with in my unit as a, um, you know, as a, not really sapper, but it's, it's kind of a close sapper 18 Charlie. There's nothing American in the American military that exactly defines the same thing that we do in my unit. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So there's, anyway, you deal with it. Uh, some, in some aspects, uh, sometimes you deal with it on a, um, almost logistical level, right? Or administrative. Hey, you know, this isn't an operation, but, you know, like I said, in, on the Jordanian border, there were areas, you know, we've had peace with the country of Jordan for many years. And so there are areas there that they want to demine mm -hmm. so that they can be put to use, whether it's growing stuff or trading land or whatever. And those are the more administrative you know, kind of aspects of demining. So we've done a ton of that. And that's typically in broad daylight, um, you know, metal detectors. We know exactly, we have maps of where all the mines are. Doesn't mean they're exactly where they are on the maps, but we have maps denoting exactly what kind of, um, uh, either very specifically there's a mine here, 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 or this is the pattern we use to, to lay them in whatever year. And here's the maintenance schedule. Wow. And so, that's one aspect. And then there's the special operations aspect that we dealt with a lot, which is, which is where the, the knife, you know, even administratively, you know, <laughs> you find a piece of metal. What do you do? What do you do? You, you get down, you start digging with a knife, right? And there's a way to do it. You're not just, nah, right? So, but on the special operations end, there is, uh, it's, it's a whole thing. And oftentimes you will do it. Um, in oftentimes always in pitch black, typically not even night vision because that gets in the way. Wow. And, um, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I can do a much better job of doing that, you know, in pitch black without night vision than with night vision. So, 
and, and we have various tools from metal detectors to these uh, prod um, uh, probes, you know, folding little probes that you can take out, and 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 those are really good for certain aspects. If I just want to get through somewhere, I'll pull that out. I don't have to get on my hands and knees and start digging the ground. Uh, I can I can probe literally a spot for my foot, and then probe a spot for the next foot, and so on until we're out in the danger area. Cool. That's one application. Uh, if I need to get a force, for example, through a minefield, that may be a way that you would choose to do it, depending on your mission set. And then oftentimes, you don't want to be standing up. And if, if I have to find something or whatever and neutralize it for various other reasons, the knife is your tool. That's it. The knife's your tool. You're nice and low to the ground. And I can clear a whole minefield given enough time. Not that I would ever want to do it. By the way, uh, let me let me caveat this all with this is the crappiest work that I <laughs> ever, ever want to ever do again. But okay. I'm incredibly glad that I know how to do it because if I'm ever in that situation, uh, you know. Well, paint, paint the picture for us. Are, are you, are you, uh, uh, you said it's pitch black, which is crazy. First we of all, work at night. And, and so you're on your hands and knees, you're on the ground, you're crawling. What, how are you, how do you do this without? setting something off and, and are you using your blade to fish around in the yes. sand yes so in certain situations your answer is probing with a knife and that's where the majority of the specialized features in this blade originate so this is the sapper uh, uh it started with handmade uh handmade knives that i made for uh to fulfill a request from a friend of mine an officer in my unit uh, and he got the first one and then i started kind of making them cooler and better and you know redesigning i believe he actually broke the tip off the first one i made so yes oftentimes and there are there is a time and a place where you probe with a knife and you can with kind of with any knife but you know a tool for the job, right? So, um, the more comfortable a knife is for that specific application, the correct length of blade, the correct shape of handle, because the grip is very different. Oh, let's see. Did I just cut myself? Maybe. Um, so yeah, these guys are sharp. So yeah, so the everybody knows different, you know, different grips here. I've left enough room for bigger hands for more fighting applications, right? I, I like the Filipino grip. Um, so for more fighting applications, you can kind of choke up on it. If you're bushcrafting and you want to hack and stuff, you can kind of come back and let your pinky kind of grab in here and you can really do some, some good hacking. Um, you know, for firewood, for, you know, whatever it is, uh, bushcrafty stuff. The real grip, uh, that that makes this different in terms of probing for mines is the knife sits in your hand like this. And this part right here, right back here, the connection, right? So this is going to be your grip here. So your one of these two fingers or however it lands comfortably in your hand, that's what retains the knife in your hand. Right? And so then, you're using the bird's beak with your, with your ring finger and pinky to hold it. But the, the pommel yes. is butted up against your palm there. Correct. And the pommel part, which is not technically a pommel, right? It's it's just a one-piece deal. Yeah. But where it fits into your hand, and that's this right here. That is the money. This is the money maker. Because that is the contact. That is the conversation between the ground, where you may have a thing that goes bang in your face, and your brain connects. This is where the conversation happens. Hmm. And this is the grip. So, yes, absolutely. I have, I've done that a lot. Uh, in training, I have done that a lot live in many different instances. And so, um, it's freaky. It sucks. It's, it's a horrible, horrendous job. Uh, you know, the, in, in a civilian context, if a country wants to demine a certain area, these days, they bring in machines. Right, right. They have big machines that do that. They have dogs. There's many different ways for it to be done. In a special operations context, 
and you have a very small team moving through a place and you got to get through it. And, and there's a lot of different reasons to do it. It's not just walking through and getting to the other side. You might be, for example, oh, I don't know, going in to switch somebody's landmine locations. I don't know. I'm just making that. Yeah, right, right. Just a um, hypothetical. Hypothetical, completely. So on the blade, you, uh, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting, but I'm, uh, on the blade, there is a line that goes down the blade. Uh, des- describe what that's for. It, it's very, op- very sticks out. What's that for? What this line is. And right now, I, I understand that it looks weird, right? But what you'll notice is that line goes straight through the center of the handle here. I'm trying to get a straight line here into the camera. Um, and it goes all the way right to the tip, right? That tip is what's probing the ground. And it may be submerged a little bit in the ground, right? You may have it a, a certain depth in the ground. There may be a little bit of grass. There may be some rocks or whatever that are kind of impeding your vision a little bit. And so, you know, in pitch black, that line may not help so much, but as you move the knife around, you may get a glint of light off of a, you know, a, a reflection kind of off of uh, some stars or whatever, just some little bit of ambient light. And that's just helping your brain go, yep, that's exactly where the tip is. So when you mm-hmm. feel something under the ground, your brain goes directly to that spot and not a millimeter in either direction. So your eyes are following down the line uh, and and then the tip is lost under the ground because you're probing down there. But just by following the line, you can. Um, you can extrapolate where that tip is and know exactly where that mine is. You should know anyway with enough practice just by feel, but it's confusing. And oftentimes you have a helmet with a big old glass, you know, bulletproof glass visor thing and, and you're dripping sweat all over it in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. In the middle of the night, you're sweating bullets and all the protective gear and all that. Not to speak of the fact that you probably walked quite a number of kilometers with a lot of gear to get mm-hmm. there uh, in silence and all that, you know, right. Sneaky deaky. And, um, and so any little piece that's going to help me, I want it. Now what I brought, and, and there's a lot, a lot more about this knife that, that we can discuss here in a second, but what I brought to kind of demonstrate and, and just kind of for, um, sentimental reasons, <laughs> I have, uh, I was telling you about this a little bit before, and you were like, oh, I know exactly what that is. Yes, you do. This is a U.S. Navy knife, uh, whatever model it is. I think it's like a Mark III, Mark III Mod Zero. At least that's what it says here. Uh, you, I guarantee, know a lot more about the history of this than I do. Not, not really. I just recognize that really cool clip point shape. Yeah, yeah. This is the knife that I actually did a tremendous amount of that probing with this this specific knife now the reason i'm showing it uh yeah these don't come sharp i've obviously sharpened this the reason i'm showing you is is this right this right here we take some very dense uh like closed cell foam and wrap it around in a certain way and then we duct tape it with this gaffer tape which is like the best tape on the planet yeah um, and this was this was my knife this is one of one of my knives right? so cool. tied into your vest and you have arm's reach, right? So I can probe with it. I can fight with it. I can do whatever I need with it. Um, and it's, you know, everything for us is, uh, it's all dummy corded to you. Everything. Oh, interesting. So that you're out in the dark. You're not on your hands and knees. Where'd my knife go? You're <laughs> oh, So even worse than that, because you're not going to lose a knife. Right? Yeah. I mean, when you're in combat fighting, all that, that's when you might lose a piece of kit. Right, right. Running for your life, you might be losing a piece of kit. You're not going to lose a kit, uh, a, a knife in a minefield, right? <laughs> but if it does fall, at least it's still connected to you, right? We're very concerned about, even though some of the more sensitive oh. anti-personnel landmines may take four kilos to set off, which mm-hmm. is like nothing, right? What is that? 10 pounds? Um, and some of them are even a little bit lighter. We're sensitive about, I'm not even scraping the ground somewhere where I think, yeah, right. I get it. I see what you're talking about. It's not about losing it. It's about dropping it on a damn mine and having it go off. That's part of it. A lot of it is about losing it. All Every button on your uniform, everything is is not only sewn on, but then we glue it. Oh, right? We put glue on. I mean, we're, we're very pedantic about these things. Very. You have to be pedantic about every little thing. All the knits on your shoes are 
counted and marked with UV paint. So you can find them if you lose one when you do your checklist on the way home. So, yeah. yeah. I, I, you say right and I say yeah, but I haven't lived that. It's really interesting for me to hear. What, what were you about to show? Yeah. <laughs> so, so the, the crux of this whole thing is this, all right? Uh, for those of you, I'm, I'm not going to take this off because this is the original thing left over from the military, right? But, uh, and, and it's still in great shape. But this was our solution for this, right? This was our solution. And it's, it's not ideal to say the least, right? It's giving you a little bit of bounce so that, you know, it's your conversation with under the ground is more gentle, but you're losing some of that feel, yeah. right? losing some of that feel. But when you do this for a full night, when you do this for a full night every day of the week for, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, your, your palms, it sucks, right? It, it doesn't feel good when people talk about getting hot spots and stuff from chopping wood. Right. It's a similar kind of concept. And so, and so that's why it took me, it took me quite a few tries to actually get something that works for me. Uh, and I think it works for the majority of hands because it's about this curve. It's not necessarily about how long it is. It'll fit yeah. in, should fit in the majority of hands. Um, and so that's the story. It's, it, it is no secret that I'm a huge fan of Tim Kell and his knives. I think he's a, a great guy. Uh, but I'm, I'm so, you know, I carry his knives all the time. I'm looking forward to the new, um, MR1. I can't wait to get that, uh, the call. What was it like working with the great and powerful Tim Kell on this project? Great and powerful Wizard of Oz. I also, this is my EDC. Oh, this nice. Is- nice. Yeah. yeah. Love. Tim's work. Love Tim's work. Yep. Yeah. Um, I have a bunch of his knives. Tim and I met in kind of a funny way. Um, I made a, I made a video for, I'm, I'm part of a team called Tactical Rifleman. Uh, those are my brothers, Carl Erickson and, you know, Randy Wurst and, and all these just tremendous guys. Um, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm blessed everywhere I go. I meet the best people, really the best people. And Carl is and Randy is and all, all our other guys on uh tactical rifleman and so a uh, uh, matter of fact we just drove in here tomorrow morning we're starting a, a tactical rifleman night night shooting class oh cool um where was i going with that tim kell yeah randy worst and i randy's a fifth group legend he's a legend in my life i love randy we made a video on a bunch of knives our film crew sent us it was like two giant boxes of knives and they're like, here, do a video on this. And we're like, what? What do you mean do a video on this? There's like a hundred knives in there. And so we did three little videos on just going through them. I'm not big on doing specifically gear reviews, mm-hmm. uh, gear review videos. I love gear. I'm a gearhead for sure. We all are, but I find them to be a little boring. And so I always try to do different stuff that will incorporate whatever it is that I'm trying to show. So if I'm trying to show a rifle, I may do a, a shooting drill and be like, here's why I like this rifle for this, right? Um, as opposed to check out this rifle and here's what it costs and the pin diameter is blah, blah, blah. So Randy and I are like, okay, what do we do? So we separated all these knives off into sections and, and, and by use and by size. And we kind of, you know, came up with like three or four little tests. For all of them, a cutting test, a stabbing test, you know, a meat cutting test and that kind of deal. Um, and that was the one time I, I really, I pissed off a couple of knife makers because I was like, man, this is, uh, this is junk. I'm sorry. I, I don't like to say bad things about people's work on the internet, but sometimes, sometimes you got to call the baby ugly, right? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Tim saw that video. I believe it actually was Tim's wife saw that video and she was like, Tim, you got to call this guy. I think you guys are going to get along. <laughs> and Tim's like me. He's like, yeah, whatever. It's another, you know, dumbass on the internet. Who cares? He's talking about knives. So he watches it. He goes, yeah, he does kind of know what he's talking about. And he does kind of think like I do. And he gave me a call. And immediately we had like a two and a half hour conversation. I was in Texas teaching classes and I had to get up at, you know, you know, zero dark 30 in the morning to go teach. Uh, and I think we chatted until like 2 a.m. And at the end of that, he was like, Hey, look, you know, let me send you some knives. So you see, and then maybe you can do a review on them. Um, and I'm, uh, for the record, I'm horrible. I'm horrendous at anything social media. I'm terrible. So 
be tracking and posting and filming and all that. So I'm, I'm just not, I'm not good. I'm not good at, I'm trying, I'm trying. So, um, Anyway, uh, you know, I, we started doing stuff and I was like, man, you know, I don't like this design, but your other design, I love it. And, and we started going back and forth and pretty quickly we got to the point where we're like, dude, we, we got to do a project. We got to do something. So, so this is the first project that we did and we both fell in love with it. It's a true collaboration, right? Um, I, a lot of people have had not true collaborations where, mm-hmm. You know, the guy who came up with the design, nobody's reinventing the wheel, right? It's a knife. A knife's a knife. It's got a cutting edge. It's got a handle. And typically, it's got a spine of some sort and blah, 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 right? It's, and it should be sharp. Um, but the little design stuff, you know, no, so a lot of people are, no, you make it exactly like this, and this is what it has to look like, and I'm the guy who knows everything, and you just make the stupid thing. Uh, and and that's not fun. That's not fun for yeah. And Tim and I really jive, just like Nir and I do, right? In a very different way. It's like, uh, I don't know if you're a metalhead or whatever. I love the band Tool. Oh, I love Tool. Yeah. I love Tool. It's one of my absolute favorite bands. Maynard's got a bunch of bands, right? Yeah. For Perfect Circle, blah, blah, blah. All the, they're all tremendous and they don't conflict with each other. Right. They're, right. they're all very different. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how I view this whole thing, right? I'm, I'm still going to make knives with Nir with Lotar Combat Knives because he's awesome. Uh, and his knives are awesome. Tim has a very specific Tim feel to his knives and Tim look to his knives. And, um, uh, and I'll, I'll show you one of Tim's little features here that I think just blew my mind. So, um, so yeah, so immediately, uh, you know, we're like, dude, this is awesome. Tim is a supremely honest, good person, which is more important to me than the skill. However, the skills there. Right. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I, I got that impression of him personally as well. Before he even came on the show, I interviewed him on a Saturday morning, which is somewhat rare for this show. But um, before he came on, he's like, oh, I'm just making biscuits for the family. And I asked him for the recipe. He sent it to me. He didn't know who I was. Sent me the recipe. I was like, all right, this is a cool guy. And we ended up hitting it off. Uh, what were you going to, sh- what were you going to show? Were you, is it the nickel boron? No, no, uh, it's a finish. That's, that's still cool. It is. That, cool. that even adds a, a Rockwell hardness. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? I think we're going to do this in a stonewashed finish, which I love. Oh, nice. I want a little bit darker and I want a stonewashed finish. And by the way, on the next gen, we're adding along this line, it's going to be like little hashes for like a ruler. Oh, cool. What I wanted to show you is this. It's actually the sheath. Kydex sheath, right? We're, we're actually redesigning the sheath a little bit. This here, this is the genius of Tim. When we started doing this, I was like, hey, and hold on. I have another one of Tim's knives right here. I have a, oh, sorry. I, I, I'm good at breaking things. I kicked the table hard. I have a mercenary. Oh, yeah. This is one of my favorite knives of Tim's. I have nothing to do with this knife in, in terms of design. This is 100% Tim. Um, and he made this before we even knew each other. But it's got the same locking mechanism. That's Tim's design. So when we were designing it, I said, look, Tim, uh, one of my passions now is skydiving. I love skydiving. Oh, cool. One of my best friends, Sue, Sue LaRue and I, uh, we do a lot of stupid things. Um, one of the less stupid things we do is skydiving and we skydive together a lot. So, uh, he was a halo jumper in, in fifth group and 10th group and all that. And he kind of took me under his wing for all of that. And he's teaching me how to make all of his mistakes. So that's awesome. The reason I bring that up is I said, Hey, Tim, look, I'm going to jump out of airplanes with this knife. I'm going to 100% make it so that when I want to, I can have a very calm mind about the fact that it's not coming out of the, um, out of the sheath at any point during my skydive. Um, probably the most concerning of which is exit. And maybe the actual landing, right? When you're in there, it's just wind. So, um, so this is what he did. And essentially what you have here is you have a really good positive retention. Okay. But right here, right? Those of you guys, uh, I'm sure everybody watching here, uh, knows exactly this is your, this is going to split right there as you take the knife out of yeah, the, the, right? the mouth of the Kydex sheath splits open so it can 
release retention. Right? Yeah. Otherwise, uh, here where where the majority of the retention is around the guard, um, you know, when if if you just make this right, and that's why a lot of Kydex sheaths are two piece, right? Like this one, which is a you know a two piece Kydex sheath, and you make it. You take the two pieces apart so you can get the knife out of the kydex. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, this is the brilliance in this is the simplicity. So, you kind of unscrew it a little bit and you move it up to the top and then you kind of screw it in a little bit. It's so cool. You have unbelievable retention. Now, another cool thing if you really want this knife, I got to get this knife out. You can be really aggressive with it and get it out. But you have to, you have to truly mean to get it out. Right, right. And so that's, that's cool. Yeah, and that's the Timbrain. That's the Timbrain, right? Crayon eating marine. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm glad you said it. I can't say that. <laughs> oh, that's, that's our banter the whole time. Yeah, that how's your cray? Cool. How's your breakfast crayon? Oh, was it black? Okay. Oh man, I, I had so much fun, and I know I'm not the only one because I heard other people uh, mention how fun it was being at uh, the the T Kel Knives uh, booth during Blade Show and. You were there and, you know, I, I was definitely hanging out, talking a lot. And uh, I realized at one point, I'm like, I better buy something or move on or Tim's going to be like, who is this guy just hanging out? But yeah, uh, I think, uh, seeing, seeing, uh, you were showing me the different, uh, showing me the different ways you use karambits, showing me the, the different ways your, uh, the sapper is working and just, uh, also the knives that you appreciate, uh, i.e. the night stalker and stuff like that and it just really uh made me made me think like you're someone who has a real love for knives and you also have a real le- uh um range of legitimate uses for you to be designing knives within and uh you know a lot a lot of people design all sorts of knives but you seem to have that field expertise uh one one last question before we wrap here and and that is like uh outside of it has to be for its intended purpose what makes a good knife, in your opinion? Well, yeah, yeah, that's that's a heavy one, right? As a knife, well, as a previous knife maker, I've not made a knife in about four or five years, uh, but that was my previous business. I would say well, there's there's not a specific factor, right? Um, the steel, first of all, is your that's that's the foundation of your house, right? The steel. On top of that. There's geometry. You have your geometry of both the, the handle and the blade side. Um, and, and those are, you know, if you get your geometry off, the knife's going to suck, right? Uh, you get your geometry off, it's not going to be sharp or it's going to dull too quick or whatever. And that's why a knife is a job specific tool. Um, and then there's the black magic, the black magic, the black magic of heat treat. Uh, heat treating, heat treating is the, the, you know, the biggest thing, right? Yeah. I don't care what kind of S30 VP Q S12 you have. If you don't get the heat treat perfect, it's garbage. It's not a knife. It's an object that looks like a knife. So the steel, the blade geometry slash handle geometry. And let me, I, I don't like to kind of, um, I, I don't like to say bad things about. Other people certainly not in this kind of uh, uh, environment, but uh, or on this kind of stage. But so many knife makers do not understand the a the use of a knife. They may be tremendous knife makers, but they don't understand how to use this knife, uh, and they don't understand this thing. There's a reason Da Vinci and all those you know incredibly brilliant people. Uh, were the first to really be able to draw this hand. And that's just drawing it, right? It's a hand. It's a friggin' hand. You got five fingers and a couple of veins running through it, right? But um, the hand is very complex, and there are no two sets of hands that are identical. Mm-hmm. So understanding how a blade fits in your hand, and that's one of the things I love about karambits, is the complexity of the grip of a karambit. You get this a couple of millimeters off, it is so uncomfortable. It's mm-hmm. horrible, right? It's a yeah. horrible feeling. Um, and I'll show you the first knife, the first karambit that I made that came out right, that came out like, mm, yeah, right. This, this is my, um, this is my EDC karambit 
outside of the Karma, of course, which I carry the Karma more often. This one is the most comfortable knife to carry, period. Mm-hmm. Obviously, because both because of the sheath itself. Um, that's a piece of Damascus. So I, I beat the crap cool. out of this thing. You showed me this. Yeah, I remember seeing that Damascus. Oh, that's beautiful. This was where the Karma project began. It was this knife. Uh, it's a 36-layer random pattern Damascus, um, 15N20 and 1095 carbon fiber uh, grips. And, of course, you know, I started doing this curvature on the carbon fiber, and I was like, wow. And we've all seen carbon fiber. I've never seen carbon fiber like this. And all it is is the shape that you give it, right? Um, the contours will dictate all these ridiculous patterns. Yeah. Take, taking a relatively, um, well, a, re- uh, a regular pattern in the two dimensions, you, you give it the three dimensional thing and it, it turns that from a basket weave into something way more beautiful. Right. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. So this karambit, this is, I love this. I love this. This is almost a third of an inch thick. Right? I said, I like big beefy knives. Um, so, you know, everybody and, and, you know, Steve and Owen and all my teachers, all my friends are always like, no, we're not doing a quarter inch knife again. And I'm like, dude, that's the thinnest I want to go. Yeah. Quarter inch. What's this thing's almost a third of an inch thick. Um, because I, it started off because I was like, you know, I, I love Damascus. I'm obsessed with Damascus. I'm obsessed with making Damascus. Now the teeth, the whole idea and, and it's similar on the, on the karma is in a lot of states, first of all, I'm not a big fan of double-edged knives, but in a lot of states, uh, in terms of use, I think visually they're stunning. Mm -hmm. In terms of use, mm, a lot of states, it is illegal to conceal a double-edged knife. And Colorado, where I was living at the time, you're not allowed to conceal a double-edged knife. And I was like, okay, well, I still want to make this useful. And I was doing a lot of NBC at the time, and this Full circle, because I never truly answered your question in the beginning about karambits and how they fit into MBC or Krav Maga. They fit in perfectly once you understand the tool. Uh, nothing I do or teach is fancy or, uh, you know, whatever. I love aggression. And first of all, come on, this looks awesome. It uh, looks yeah, badass. Yeah. But, um, but the idea is it, it grabs flesh and yeah. And so it helps you on traps. Um, right. You can grab back a neck or arm or, you know, different things. And I get animated. I start hitting things. Um, I'm new to the podcasting thing. So, um, anyway, that, that's the idea. So it's legal to carry in more states. Now the overall length here of the blade is exactly the legal limit, um, of this one. Um, at the time in Colorado, it's, it's three inches exactly here. Um, and different, Agencies will tell you to measure it different ways. Yeah. But the bottom line is the cutting edge here is three inches straight line. And put this in your hand and fight the way you know how to fight, right? Yep. Yep. I have. I have put that one in my hand and it's very intuitive and it lines that uh that finger hole up, which is which can be, you know, the finger hole in the wrong uh, you know, off by a millimeter or whatever. You're gonna break your knuckles if you if you try to punch. Emery, I want to thank you for coming on the Knife Junkie podcast. We're going to continue this conversation so much. Uh, to to the patrons out there. Uh, I mean, I could I could talk to you for a lot longer, but we're we're going to do a, a little bit more. I have a couple of interesting questions to ask you, and awesome. uh, and those people get to hear it. But thank you so much for coming on the Knife Junkie podcast. It's been a great pleasure, sir. Absolutely, Bob. Thank thanks so much. I I don't get a chance to geek out like this and <laughs> get into it with people who love this so much. So so thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Ah, my pleasure, sir. Take care. You know you're a knife junkie if you have your latest knife purchase shipped to your office so your wife doesn't know. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Imri Morgenstern, designer, co-designer of the new Tikel Knives Sapper, uh, designer of the Lotar Combat Knives Karma, and then you heard all the other cool stuff he does and is responsible for. Uh, chief among all of that, training uh, good people like you and me how to defend ourselves. We're going to talk a little bit about that in the interview extras. I look forward to that. Uh, I hope you're looking forward to another great uh, conversation next week right here on the Knife Junkie podcast. Also, be sure to check in with us on Wednesday for the midweek supplemental and Thursday night for Thursday Night Knives. It's the beginning of the weekend at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitch. 
For Jim, working his magic behind the switcher, I'm Bob DeMarco saying until next time, don't take dull for an answer. Thanks for listening to the Knife Junkie Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review at reviewthepodcast.com. For show notes for today's episode, additional resources, and to listen to past episodes, visit our website, theknifejunkie.com. You can also watch our latest videos on YouTube at theknifejunkie.com slash YouTube. Check out some great knife photos on theknifejunkie.com slash Instagram, and join our Facebook group at theknifejunkie.com slash Facebook. And if you have a question or comment, email them to bob at theknifejunkie.com or call our 24-7 listener line at 724-466-4487, and you may hear Hear your comment or question answered on an upcoming episode of the Knife Junkie Podcast.